love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. And, of course, the study notes in your bulletin will be a critical part of our, of our time together this morning. Uh, Galatians, chapter 3, we'll be focusing our attention on verses 10 to 14, though I will begin reading at verse 1 here in just a couple of minutes. Uh, the paragraph that is ours, uh, 10 to 14, is called by some uh, one of the more important paragraphs in this whole letter because it, it so concisely addresses what the gospel is and why you need it. Now, if you keep track of uh, history, you know that this year, this Thursday, Halloween, All Saints' Eve, is the 502nd anniversary of uh, that famous day when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, thus really uh, lighting a match to gasoline for the Protestant Reformation, what, is, what it is now called. And we thought about that specifically a couple of years ago, along with many, on the 500th anniversary of that event. 502, let me just tell you, nobody celebrates. But, but I mention it because we're right here in this text, this week, and here we are. And this, this text, as it, as it communicates the gospel... What it is Jesus did when he died on the cross, what does that mean to us, was something that Martin Luther, to go back to him, so desperately longed for. Uh, To read the story of his life, one of the little biographies uh, that that captures his life, one by Roland Bainton, called Here I Stand, a, a Life of Martin Luther, it captures the angst of his soul as before he came to know Christ, He longed for peace in his heart. The Holy Spirit, maybe you've had this experience, just pressing on him. His lostness, his separation from God. Of course, he was raised in a good guilt guilt, uh, place, so he knew all about what it was like to feel guilty. And indeed, he did. And his soul was was tormented, longing to have a place of peace with God. And I love the way uh, Luther would tell and others would tell and Bainton would tell the story of Luther trying to find peace through confessing his sins. And it's just a a classic moment in history. Maybe you've been here where you do about anything to to get rid of this feeling of of guilt or shame or something like that. Well, he did. Uh, He took confessing very seriously. And for a season, he had another priest. He was a a monk at the time. Uh, But he had a a guy by the name of Johann von Stoppitz who was, I can do the irony of that name, but he was, stop it, just stop it, stop it. I'm probably saying it wrong and, and so on. But he, Luther would come to him and confess his sins, sometimes for hours at a time, racking his brain to think of any, anything he did or said or thought or felt that was wrong. Thus, by confessing it, that he would have his soul freed. And at one point, his confessor, Stoppitz, said to him, man, God is not angry with you. You're angry with God. Uh, Don't you know that God commands you to have hope? How about that? How about that from a person you're confessing to? And at one point, uh, he said as well, if you expect Christ to forgive you, come in here with something to forgive. He lists parricide. I had to look it up. Killing of parents or relatives. Can you imagine that? Come in here with something good. Parricide, blasphemy, adultery. Instead of all these picadillos, these little sins, he's going, man, if you're going to spend six hours of my day confessing sin, go sin or something. I am bored to tears. 
all of that to not to poke fun at Luther, but it was a it was a, a longing of his soul to have have rest, to know that he was at peace with God, and whatever he had tried so far was not working. And then, of course, he he tells his own story famously of wrestling with the Book of Romans and those phrases about the just, God's justice, and the just living by faith, and what does it mean until he finally saw it, the justice of God that required satisfaction for our sins and the peace that we can have with God when we trust Christ. And then he describes the change in his own life. I love, I love the story of Luther. Well, Galatians, of course, arguably, I, I think the, the first letter that Paul wrote, these are truths that, that, that Martin Luther wrestled with as well in his life, and I'm happy for us to do so. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with things like, like Luther. I, th- I think we wrestle with, if not the same thing, similar things. Um, I'm reminded of Ed Welch's book called Shame Interrupted as he grapples with guilt and shame that we often feel, how God lifts the pain of worthlessness and rejection. And this book is all about how the gospel of Jesus interrupts those those wrestlings of the heart, guilt, shame, uh, awareness of, of displeasure from God. Well, good things for us to wrestle with. And it's my hope today that as we come to this text, that, that you will wrap your brain and your heart around the gospel. Uh, if, if there are fuzzy parts in your understanding of what Jesus did, I hope those are clarified today. This is such an important text, and I just long for all of us to hear it and understand it, and then to love it and believe it. So that's my hope for us today. I'd love to pray for us that God will use his word. Pray with me, please. Our Father, we come to your word as always with the anticipation, the expectation that the Spirit of God will meet us here in the preaching of the Word of God. Oh, we need your help. We are so easily distracted. Our minds wander. My mind wanders. And oh, Father, would you, would you help us not only with our minds but with our hearts? Uh, we need you to, to plow up those hard places in our hearts to where we hear not only with physical ears but with spiritual ears. Understanding and responding and loving and responding in faith, oh God, would you use your word today by the power of the Spirit of God? This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Galatians uh, chapter 3, I would like to read starting at verse 1, as I mentioned, because our text starting at verse 4 begins with a connecting word. I think it does in all of our translations. It starts with four. So, our paragraph continues what has already begun in chapter 3, and I just hate stepping into the middle of an argument. So we're going to start at the beginning. And of course, this is a, a chapter, as you heard last week, the first part of it preached with Pastor Tyler. There's, a, there's, a, there's an exasperation on the part of the Apostle Paul. It, it's, it's a text that kind of follows the theme of chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul looks at these people through a pen and parchment uh, from miles away and says, I can't believe you people. Man, we were off to such a great start. You went 10 yards up the runway and you went left. What is this all about? Now stop it and get back where you belong. So please understand his exasperation. There's emotion and passion here. So Galatians 3 then, starting verse 1, Paul says this, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. 
Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That is, are you growing in holiness by this good behavior you're, you're, you're pulling off? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of, of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, declare righteous, that is, the Gentiles, the nations, by faith, God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Genesis 12. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, for, you see the connection, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, quoting Habakkuk. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, he's quoting again, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that, here's a purpose, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the nations, to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Man, he's loaded for bear. He's coming for you, both barrels, if I use a good hunting illustration. On your study notes, you see, of course, some words of review, and I'll let you take a look at all those. Under the paragraph uh, introduction, today's text, two stunning assertions, which will be our major headings down below. Two stunning assertions, I say here, that undermine the most popular religious myth in America. What is that? Well, it's the belief that heaven is for good people, right? Hell is for bad people, all dozen of them. I mean, that would be like Hitler and Stalin and like really, really bad people. But everybody else, I mean, pretty much, pretty much, certainly, certainly you and me. I mean, look at us. I mean, come on. Aren't we the good guys? The good, I mean, really, us? Here we are. We're at church. I mean, come on, if that doesn't merit a little favor from God, surely going to church, carrying a Bible, singing a song, not, not you know, like killing people. Surely we're the good people, aren't we? I, I call it an American myth because I think it's the prevailing idea of heaven and hell in America. This is where we live, this, this worldview. You hear it at funerals, you hear it when, in, a, in any, about any setting when someone dies, People will comment on what, what good they did in the world, what a wonderful person they were, and they've gone to a, what do we say? We've gone to a good place, gone to a better place. He's gone to a better place. She's gone to a better place. Really? Wow. Well, it's a, an American myth, and Paul's going to take it on. This paragraph addresses it, takes it apart. Oh, my goodness sakes. Wow, this is, this is really a big deal. We're going to see today, as I put here, that the cross of Christ that is, that's shorthand for all the work of Jesus. The cross of Christ is that which satisfies God's just anger at our sin. That happens through the death of his only son, Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, leaving no room, zero, zero, 
for my attempts to earn God's favor myself. Wow. Well, I want to look at it under those two headings, verses 10 to 12, and then I think 13 and 14 kind of divide by emphasis. So I'm going to approach it that way. Verse 10, 4. He's underscoring the first part. For all who rely on, who trust the works of the law are under a curse. That is, that is astounding information. If a person, he says, is counting on earning, that's relying on works of the law, you're going you're gonna to obey your way into heaven. You're going to earn your little piece of God's pie. They're trusting. They're trusting on the law. That is earning it. That's, that's what that's all about. Whether earning it through one or two little things or a whole lot. No, no, if you are relying on your behavior, good stuff, nice, nice things, giving money to good causes, all manner of good things, under a curse, can you imagine? Under a curse, I thought I was, I thought I was, I thought I was on God's side. Come on, this is alarming news for many. Under a curse, trying to earn God's favor, that's a little fill-in. We think we're under the smile of God. And, and you, you see a problem here. The text outlines it. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law and do them. Do you see a problem here? Any words jump out at you and say, But wait, what's that about? Uh, does anyone who does not abide in or abide by, what is that little word? All of them. So which part of the law must I keep to get into God's heaven? Oh, it's no problem. Just all of it. Well, how often? Oh, all the time. Like six days a week? I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, if you kept all the works of the law six days a week, that'd be great. You'd really, I'd love you as a neighbor. Give you Saturdays off. No, all the works of the law, all the time. Oh, and it gets worse. Or better, depending on how you, how you look at it. Not only is that a, an issue, problems I mentioned here on your study sheet, but further, Jesus makes clear in the Sermon on the Mount uh, what is explicit and implicit in Old Testament writing, that God cares about your heart, not just your outward behavior. So it really, it isn't just enough if you did externally all the right things. I'm not going to tell a lie. I'm not going to steal your lawnmower, even though I really like it. What if I want to steal your lawnmower? What if I don't even want to steal it, but I, I sit back and covet it? Oh, that's one of the Ten Commandments. Snap. Blew it already. So not only external behavior, but, but internal behavior. The longings of the heart. Even the things you don't do, but you wish you could, right? And not get caught. The, the things your heart says, hmm, that would be fun. I, and I kind of want it, but I won't because I'm a good person. Even there, my heart is across God's law because I'm loving what God doesn't love. I'm loving what is a dishonor to him. So this, this is a damning statement. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Wow, what chance do I have then? I, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. Now, Paul quickly points out, even the Old Testament speaks of righteousness by faith. And that's verse 11. It's evident, he says, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, one of the prophets, the righteous shall live by faith. And I mentioned here on your sermon notes, I'm on the second page right now, that that, that phrase is used as well. He exegetes that in Romans chapter 1, 16, 17. You look at that later for 
your, your uh, community group notes. And, and then also, again, the writer to Hebrews mentions it in chapter 10. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Who are those? Well, it's faith. It's faith. Trusting in the person and the promise of God. So Paul's pointing to the Old Testament saying, even there, justification by faith is mentioned. Not just those issues of the law and obedience. Verse 12, but the law... The law is not of faith. Now, next week, we're going to be talking a lot more about the law. So as you wrestle with that term, sometimes in the Bible, the word the law is used to speak specifically of the Mosaic law. Sometimes it's used as a, in a bigger catchphrase as Old Testament in general. Uh, sometimes it's used even more specifically, Ten Commandments. So you, you look at what all that is about. The law is not of faith. Uh, there are elements in the Old Testament that are about faith. I think Paul's point here is, as I have on your study notes, best understood as the law as a means of righteousness. I think that's the idea in verse 12. It's a tough verse to understand grammatically. Some would say it's one of the harder verses to, to translate and grapple with in the whole book of Galatians. But the law, he says, is not a faith. Well, the law is a means of righteousness. If you're going to earn it, it's not a faith. You can't have it both ways. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, if you're going to, if you're going to say, okay, I'm going to work at it, uh, to, to use our vernacular, Paul says, good luck with that. You're going to live or die by that, and I'm going to give you five minutes, and you'll have broken something. Ready? Go. And by the way, it's too late, because you've already broken God's law. <laughs> wow. Well, those who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Verses 13 and 14. Now, we step to, we step to the, what, what really is the gospel in a nutshell, so to speak. Here he goes. Christ, now, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's just spoken about that. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Of course, grammatically, that's the place to use the word hanged because it means executed. It's really the only place you would really use that. Translators are correct. Uh, Hanged, uh, executed. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, if you look at your study notes, I just want to talk about this verse just a little bit and just spell some things out. And if I could just, oh my goodness sakes, if your brain already has wandered off to pizza or lunch or activities of last week, if you could just corral it and bring it back. At least for this next, I, I know, I sit through sermons too. I know exactly how it is. You know, your, your mind tiptoes over here and then you come back and go, okay, I think we're on verse 12 now. <laughs> Got it. That's the way we listen. I went through school. I know how it is. But come back now. Come back now for this moment, okay? You, 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 I am sometimes, in all seriousness, saddened because I see among God's people, I don't just mean, I don't mean even specifically here, but in, in, in broader Christianity, such a miss in understanding the gospel. You know, you'd think after all these years and how many sermons, how many ink has been spilled, how many words have been said that people, we, we just miss some things. So here, here you go. The clear teaching of the Bible is that God is totally just, that is, holy, righteous, and good, and therefore, every single sin must be paid for. Folks, do you see this? Every single sin. God does not skip one in his evaluation and judgment of sin. Not one. If God overlooked one sin, he he was the judge who let traffic tickets go if you look nice. If God did that, he would not be just. Every sin, there's an exacting. 
Every single time. You go, man, how does that work? Well, keep on going. If God were to ignore any sin, he would not be a just judge. Now, Old Testament sacrifices, people sometimes erroneously think that in the Old Testament, sin was paid for by animal sacrifice. Not true, not true, not, never was true. In the Old Testament, sacrifices covered, that's your little fill-in, covered. You find this specific, I gave you a text for this, Romans 3.25 in particular, God overlooked sin. Those things were covered until the day that the perfect sacrifice could come and pay for our sin. If you've ever thought that in the Old Testament sin was paid for by animal sacrifice, wrong, wrong, wrong. Covered, only paid for by by Christ, who in his death on the cross paid for all sin. He was the only one who could. So so square it up, folks, right? Old Testament, no. This is that's all the text that I gave you in Hebrews. It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The writer to Hebrews says, Absolutely impossible. What animal could pay for you, your offense before God? Not one of the rivers of blood shed in the Old Testament could pay for you. No, it took the blood of Jesus, who by his one sacrifice, Hebrews says, once for all, paid for sin. Anybody who gets into God's heaven, any, any, anybody, Old Testament, New Testament, yet to be born, is there because their sins are covered, paid for, paid for by Jesus when he died on the cross. Okay, getting it, getting it right. Read those other texts. Oh, I ask you to do that. Uh, Discuss them in in community group. Christ paid for all sin for all time by his death on the cross. Christ became a curse for us as he hung on Calvary's cross. The innocent one in place of the truly guilty. To use a $5 word, substitution. Okay, substitution. Jesus, please get this. Jesus died in our place. That's the idea behind the word substitution. He was in our place. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? He became a curse for us. Somebody needed to go to that cross. It's you or it's him. And by the way, you couldn't have really paid for your sin anyway because you're pretty flawed. The innocent one died for the guilty. Uh, In my place, how's it go? In my place, condemned he stood. Title, incidentally, of a handy little book on the atonement. In my place, condemned he stood. J.I. Packer, Mark Dever. Collection of essays on on what Jesus did to help the reader understand Jesus died in my place. Substitution. Uh, Another $5 word, and I reference it over under the today's text section. Christ satisfies God's just anger. That satisfaction is the idea behind the the theological word propitiation. It's It's God being satisfied. He looks, God looks at his son dying on the cross, and he is satisfied. Isaiah 53 uh, I don't think you heard that part of it today. It's the latter part of Isaiah 53. Cover it. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Propitiation. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, everyone who is hanged on a tree, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a, on a tree. Man. Do you see this, folks? Do you see this? Substitution. God's just anger satisfied fully in the death of his son in your place. Do you see this? Verse 14, now, uh, it, it, it's, it's kind of, um, 
it returns to some thoughts that began the chapter. Verses 1 through 14, in a sense, are a section. And verse 14 repeats some of those themes that are introduced, called inclusio, if you keep track of literary things. But verse 14 kind of draws the net back, and it uses two purpose phrases, two purpose words, rather, in order that. Or in order that. ESV says, so that, so that. And they're parallel phrases. So look at the text with me. See how it's laid out. Paul's a master writer. He really is. So that, in order that, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to the nations, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The, the Greek grammar is such, I'll save you some of the technical details. It would very much appear from the way things are written here that when Paul writes the blessing of Abraham, he's referring to the spirit of God, the promised spirit that is received when you trust Christ, when you trust Christ as your savior and you're forgiven by God for your sin and the spirit of God comes and takes a residence in your life. That, he would say, is the blessing of Abraham. It's what was promised to Abraham of old. Of course, we saw that last week preaching the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Substitution. Now, that next little paragraph, look at this with me, please. The great and eternal benefits of Christ's death on the cross are not like automatically applied to good people. We mentioned the good American myth. You know, good people go to heaven, bad people don't. Well, no. Good people who try hard, good people who are nice most of the time, well, no, are not automatically, they're not credited with righteousness. No, rather, those who receive the promised spirit through faith, trusting in the finished worth of Christ and work of Christ. I mention here, this is the cry of the reformers of old. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the authority of Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And those are famously uh, phrased in Latin with sola, the five solas of the Reformation, those things that our forebears 500 years ago, or Martin Luther 502 years ago, to be specific. The, 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 the firestorm that was ignited really came under those five headings. Good for you to know. Five solas, five, five things. By grace alone. You didn't earn it. You can't. Received by faith alone, not your works, not one bit. It's not 95% Jesus and 5% you because you're so nice. No, no. 100% the work of Christ. Received through faith alone, in Christ alone. He is the one. It's only about Jesus. On the authority of Scripture alone. For the glory of God alone. Now, I want to do a couple of things here. I... um, come to this moment uh, because I want to I want to I want to talk about this with us this this work of the gospel and the importance of understanding that the cross is the heart of the gospel uh, we live in a day where sometimes for our for God's work in our life we look to all kinds of places I understand God gives us a lot of resources I was I was struck this week um, by an article I read in a, in a journal, uh, the topic of this journal is pastoral burnout. That's a cheery topic. And it's a whole number of uh, short writings. It's written mainly to pastors to talk about what is needed for your soul and your life and your ministry so that you do not find yourself curled up in a, you know, on the side of the road someplace as traffic passes you by. And there was one of these articles that especially resonated with me, and I'll tell you why. Um, it's all about the gospel. It is. Um, I, am, I am excited about an opportunity to have a couple weeks from now. I'll be teaching a class 
with a, with Adelphia Disip- School of Discipleship, Adelphia Discipleship School. It's up at um, Lake Retreat. It's hosted up there. And it's, a, it's like a, a gap year thing for young people who aren't really, many of them aren't sure where they're going yet, but they take a year in a discipleship school. It's not about getting a degree. It's about taking a year to be discipled. That's the point of it. And they bring in different people to teach three days a week. So I get to teach, November 6, 7, 8, a crash course on the book of Hebrews. I know. So I've been working on this for weeks. Um, how do you say it in like 10 hours? How, how do you? And, and so I have, been, I have been rolling around again in, in the message of the book of Hebrews. And it lines up with today's text. Because the book of Hebrews is a call, if it's anything, it is. It's a call for the people who are receiving the letter to endure, to endure. See, over and over again, it, is a repeat, it repeats throughout the whole book. Endure, endure in faith. I don't just mean hang in there, you know, grimacing. and No, no, but joyfully, joyfully endure. Joyfully endure. Uh, the, the writer says, even, even, the, even when people take your property, even when it doesn't go well and God doesn't deliver you from difficulty and you go to jail or somebody near you gets their head cut off, no, joyfully endure. So what does he tell them? What do you tell people if you want them to joyfully endure? You give them three steps to a good life, right? That's what you, t- no. You, you tell them it'll all be okay. Is that what you tell them? Well, no, it may not be okay. Any, any place this side of heaven, what do you tell them? What do you give them? Book of Hebrews, listen, gives them Jesus. It gives them a bigger view of Christ. That's what he gives them. A bigger view of Christ in all of his offices. Prophet, priest, king, greater than Moses. Right? Greater sacrifice. His blood alone. That's what the writer's doing in in those 13 chapters. He's saying, oh, dear people, do not give up. Do not give up. Do not give up. Turn your eyes to Christ, and let's talk about him, please. Let's talk about him. Let's look at the glory of Christ. Consider him, he will say. Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, lest you become weary in your struggle against sin. And so this article caught my attention. The greatest cure for pastoral burnout is Christ himself. And this writer just works himself through a number of the Puritan writers that lift up Jesus in such a way uh, doesn't make your problems go away. But it gives perspective, eternal perspective and hope because you look to Christ. And I, 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 uh, I find it resonating in my own heart. We live such busy lives. We take glances at things. You ever driven home and not you get home and you realize, I'm not even sure about all those traffic lights I drove through. I hope they were green because I didn't stop. And you don't remember seeing them. You remember this? You know how this goes. Huh. It's, it's rather alarming. I've done it a number of times. Um, I, think, I don't remember which way I got here, but here I am, safe and sound, so I must have done it right. We, we don't notice. We're moving along, and we don't notice. And sometimes as, as believers, followers of Jesus, we, we're doing that. We're moving along, and we, we don't have time to behold Christ in a life-changing way. To, to this text today, to, to, to grasp the gospel deeply in a life-changing way. 
Christ redeemed me from the curse of the law. He became a curse for me. I mean, do you see this? Isn't this amazing news? It isn't given to us so that we could fill out a little doctrinal questionnaire and get the answers right. Check, 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 check. Did I pass? That isn't it. Oh, you want to get the answers right. It's given that you'd believe it and that your heart would sing, that your heart would rejoice. Look what Christ has done. Do you see it? And does your heart smile? Does your heart rejoice? Is there a, is there, is there a resonance in your heart? John Wesley, of course, you remember uh, John and Charles Wesley, famous guys from yesteryear. John Wesley, having served, served uh, the, the, in doing the work of God, missionary and so on, never, not saved, not saved. Imagine, came to America, tried to be a missionary, wasn't saved. Back home, that night in Aldersgate Chapel, that one night, hearing the, the preacher talk about, I think he was reading the, the preface to Luther's commentary on Romans. I think that's what it was. I, I may be wrong on that. But John Wesley would say, as I, as I heard this, hearing the gospel, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed, and I felt that I did believe he describes that moment. That was the moment my eyes were open. I saw the work of Christ. And not only did I see it and go, yep, check the box. My heart rejoiced in it. I believed it. I was saved. So it's not only an understanding. Some people, I believe this to be true even today. Sometimes people hear an explanation of the gospel. They read a tract. They hear Billy Graham. They hear something. They hear it and go, okay, I get it. it makes sense. But there's not that that spirit, spirit-directed, spirit-driven response of faith that says, yes, that's my Savior. He's mine. That, that work of the Spirit of God. I think that's what John Wesley experienced that night. I want to do this, and I'm keeping track of time because I know how I want us to end here. I want to read for you. Uh, this is a little excerpt from, it's a quote uh, in this book from another, but this little book is called uh, Long Before Luther, and it's a, it's a historical writer tracing the gospel through the years from the, from the apostles to Luther. His point being in this book, the gospel was never fully lost, even as the reformers rediscovered it. It was never fully lost. So, so here he's quoting a second-century writer, an anonymous second-century writer. And I want to read this. This is the gospel. This is this writer telling the gospel. Second century. And, and I, I just, I read it to you so that your heart will rejoice. Okay? So the writer says this. He gave his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for them that are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sin than his righteousness? By what other was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified than by the only Son of God? Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, benefits surpassing all expectation that the wicked, the wickedness of many, should be hid by a single righteous one, and that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. Anonymous. 
down through the ages remembered. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Now, one other little thing I'm going to do, and then I'm going to ask for your response as well. From this little book, In My Place, Condemned He Stood in the Introduction, uh, J.I. Packer is writing this. He says, The church is and will always be at its healthiest when every Christian can line up with every other Christian to sing Philip Bliss's simple words, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. What a savior. What a savior. Now, we're going to sing that song in just a moment. But I want to say this. You look at your places there of response, things for you to think about. I hope that if you know Christ is your Savior, your heart rejoices in us, in the gospel. Christ, your only hope. And if, if you're at a place where maybe you've heard the gospel once or a dozen times or hundreds of times, but there has not been that response of faith that says, yes, I believe that. Listen to me. Do that now as God enables your heart. You call out right now. Sometimes people go to church for years and, and just check the box, so to speak, or they go and they hear, and yes, I get it, I, I, sure, but there's not that, that moment of heart response, spirit-directed, spirit-driven, spirit-enabled heart response that says, yes, yes, Jesus is my Savior. And listen, if that's you today, dear God, <laughs> help you to respond in faith and say, yes, I'm trusting Jesus. Him alone is my Savior from sin. So do that. Do that today. We're going to sing, and I'm going to flag down Luke, who doesn't know that I want him right now. So if somebody would stick their head right there and say, hey, dude, you're on. We're going to sing, and then I'm going to pray. Stand with me, please, because that's what we're going to do. There you go. I'm going to stay right here because after we sing, I'm going to pray and I'm going to enjoy the song along with you.
Father, today our hearts rejoice in Christ, the Christ of the gospel. He took our place. He took our place. Substitution. Propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God in my place. Oh, God, what glory this is. This is life-changing on a huge level. That we can be reconciled with God, forgiven for all time and eternity, and indwelt by the Spirit of God, now you're enabling to walk in Christ. Our Father, what better news could there be as we face uh, the difficulties of life in a broken world? Father, I pray that you'd encourage the hearts of each person in this room, whatever they're facing today, whatever challenges of life and whatever difficulties of the heart, you'd turn them again and again and again to the hope of Christ in the gospel. Let us never, ever, take our eyes off of him. And we pray this in the great name of Jesus, our Savior, Redeemer. Amen.